Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Nipun Chopra. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we start, a little bit of housekeeping. You may have noticed by now that I am not Richard Farley. As much as I'd like to have his good looks, I'm just not that good looking. So let me explain why Richard is not the one talking to you at this moment. You see, Richard has taken a new job that conflicts with the recording of the podcast. And from now until the end of the season, I will be taking over as host of this wonderful podcast. In my opinion, Richard, Karthik, and Lawrence uh, were able to raise the level of the podcast back to where uh, people like myself, hardcore fans of this beautiful sport, uh, fell back in love with this podcast. So right from the onset, let me admit that Richard's knowledge, his composure on the microphone, everything about podcasting far exceeds my ability. And because of that, I feel a little unqualified to host this awesome podcast that I've been listening to for half a decade now. Uh, it's almost like when Joffrey Baratheon replaced Robert Baratheon as king of King's Landing. Things didn't go as well as they could have. So what's my goal? My goal is to make to is first of all to get better on my own and continue to raise the standards of the podcast, relying very heavily on the genius of my co-hosts, uh, Karthik Krishnaya, L- Lawrence McKenna, and of course Richard Farley. So joining me today are Karthik and Richard. Welcome to the podcast, fellas. Hi, Nipun. <laughs> Hello, Nipun. Thanks for the kind words, but uh, as people will find out over the course of the next 57 minutes, you are grossly exaggerating. On which end? On, about my good looks, mostly. I guess this isn't a video podcast, <laughs> so you can lie about that all you want, but uh, you're going to be fine. The show is going to be fine. It's probably going to go in new directions now that they're getting the, the stuttering baboon off the first mic. Oh, come on. You're terrific at this. So um, thank you also to Chris Harris for giving me this opportunity. I'm pretty excited about it. So now that we have set that aside, and by the way, uh, Richard is not going away completely because next month I will be in India for a couple of weeks in which uh, during which time Richard will again be the wonderful voice introducing and uh, running the podcast at that time. So what are we going to Look at you. Good news, then bad news. Richard's going away. No, Richard's coming back. Uh, (laughs) Happy to to help you you and your show however I can, though. We are are the arsenal of podcasts. Just when you think things are going well, things take a bad turn. And when things are going poorly, we start winning games. 
<laughs> oh, we're starting early this week. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. So what are we talking about today? So in uh, in part one of the podcast, we'll do, we'll talk about the legacy of the recently. Um, I was going to say departed, but that sounds weird. But uh, recently, we know that Johan Cruyff, Cruyff passed away. So we'll talk about his legacy within both the European game as well as uh, ga- the game over here in America. In section two, we'll talk about the the draws in terms of the Champions League and the Europa League. And then the third section, which I think our listeners will be very interested in, uh, we'll talk about the much-discussed U.S. men's national team loss against Guatemala and uh, the status of the U.S. men's national team going forward, um, and then maybe get into another couple of different areas. So let's start up, guys, with talking about the the great Johan Cruyff. Uh, I'll come to you first, Richard. Clearly, one of the greatest of all time. I think some of the some of the uh, one of my favorite analogies is that he's the David Bowie of of football, of soccer, and I think that's beautiful in the in the fact that he was ahead of his time and kind of a maverick. So uh, you and I and Karthik haven't didn't get the chance to watch him in his prime, uh, but both as a manager and a, as a player, uh, one of the greatest, right? Absolutely, and I think. Uh, his untimely death, although he had been having health problems, gives us a chance to really talk about some questions that throughout most of my lifetime haven't been asked. Over the last few years, there has been a growing appreciation of Cruyff because of the prominence of the Dutch style since ever since Spain became the best team in the world uh, seven years ago. But up until then, there really wasn't much debate about whether he was the best player in the world. The debate would always center around Pele and Maradona, and in, in this country, definitely skewed towards Pele. And I think that reflects a lot of the focus that not only the United States, but the whole world placed on World Cups. But thanks to the internet and thanks to some more time just to think about Cruyff's legacy, we put the great accomplishments of Brazil and Maradona's Argentina teams into a broader context, one that includes the context of those great Ajax teams that uh, Cruyff and Michels ushered in and won three European titles, but put it into context of uh, what Cruyff did do with the Dutch national team, even though they didn't win a World Cup. I think a lot of people have rightfully said that they're the team that's most remembered from 1974, and uh, they're the team that really could have been in 1978 had Cruyff gone down to Argentina for that tournament. And I think the perception of Cruyff as a player has only grown the longer it's been since we've seen him on the pitch. I fully entertain the conversation as to whether he was the best in the world. And in a way, to kind of draw a parallel with other sports, his legacy kind of reminds me of Ted Williams's in baseball, where most of the people that might bring up Ted Williams won't have ever seen him play. But the history of him is clouded by the fact that he his career coincided with great Yankee teams and uh, Joe DiMaggio's time with the Yankees. And as a result... The, the time at the time people didn't appreciate him as much as they could have but as time went on and knowledge grew and people were able to look back on what the spend, splendid splinter really did for the Red Sox uh, Ted Williams legacy has out, outstretched Joe DiMaggio's and I think in time when we think about the effect that Johan Cruyff has had on the game his legacy will catch up if not surpass uh, Maradona's I think he probably has surpassed Maradona's legacy for, for a lot of people and surpassed Pelé's he will be talked about with them and Lino Mendes as the four greatest players that ever played the game. And I think that's a completely justified place. 
Karthik, it's it's difficult, right, for us to to uh, make these comparisons across generations in terms of Pele, George Best, uh, and of course Maradona, Cruyff. Now we talk about Messi and Cristiano in that in that same thing. So maybe uh, it's sometimes a little bit difficult to make that judgment. But when you look at everything that Cruyff did, especially as as Richard mentioned, uh, the, the echoes of his legacy continue now under Guardiola. So as someone who is about to see uh, the, the legacy first term as a Manchester City supporter, what are your thoughts on Cruyff? Yeah, he was a transformative figure in the game, as was his uh, his original mentor uh, 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 at Ajax, Michelle, uh, Michaels, uh, and he was also a great player. So he had uh, he had both of those things. And and we talk in terms of football history in transform transformative figure, figures who were the players who changed the way the game was played, and then who were the managers who did that, and then who were the greatest players. And uh, Cruyff is in two of those categories. He might be in three of those categories, right? Barcelona had never won a European Cup until uh, he was the manager, right? Mm-hmm. In 1992 with that, uh, with that great team. Uh, the, the Barcelona had won a lot of UEFA Cups. They had won a lot of other trophies, but they had never won the European Cup, the big one, until 1992. It happened to be the year they were hosting the Summer Olympics also. So, and Sevilla had the Expo. So it was just a great time to be in Spain, uh, 1992. But Cruyff, uh, I think, also had so much of an impact on the transformational uh, nature of some of the things we've seen in football since. Obviously, Barcelona, obviously the Dutch style. Uh, I think we look at 1974, uh, where uh, they lost in in the World Cup final to, to Germany and think, we think of that as being their World Cup, even though Germany, uh, West Germany won the World Cup. It was in West Germany. 1978, Cruyff doesn't go to, to uh, Argentina, but Holland still gets to the final. And uh, they were, uh, in so many people's minds, the champions uh, of that time. And People didn't want to root for Argentina also for, for political reasons, uh, for, and for good reason in my, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in, my, in my estimation. So uh, the, the Dutch were the neutrals' uh, favorites. There were so many people who became football fans across the globe, including in this country, in the United States, because of Dutch football. Because soccer to them was a brutish, boring uh, sport that was uh, methodical and didn't make much sense. And then they saw Dutch football. Then they saw Cruyff. Then they saw uh, Ajax and Barcelona and this transformation of the sport into truly the beautiful game. So we went from Catanaccio in in the 1960s and um, some very, very successful Italian teams uh, into a negative era in which uh, even in England, English football was actually quite open and exciting and exhilarating in the 1960s. The 1970s and 1980s in English football uh, with the exception of Liverpool, who, who were always a team that played a certain brand of football, uh, were dull, boring, full, filled with hooligans. Uh, you know, a game that had, uh, in many ways, fallen, uh, lost its way. Uh, their snooker was getting better television ratings than football at one point in England. Can you believe that? Uh, that's where the game had fallen. And I think so many people, even in England, looked to the Dutch example and to Cruyff and to the continent and Barcelona uh, to recapture that. And uh, his impact is... Uh, is uh, unparalleled, perhaps, in, because, again, I, he was one of the greatest players, and he was one of the most transformative players. I can't say that Pele was a transformative player, honestly. I can't say Maradona was. Uh, Messi is part of that um, 
Cruyff legacy, uh, although I have to say, I mean, if you ask me who the transformative players of this generation have been, I would say they were Makaleli and Xavi. Xavi being part of that uh, Cruyff um, Cruyff system and Gordiola being the manager, the guy who implemented those principles. So um, one of a kind figure in football. Absolutely. So Karthik, going along with that, speaking of things uh, that he's led in, he was a part of that leading group of players such as Beckenbauer, such as George Best, who who were uh, and Pele, who were a big part of the original NASL. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people have talked about the impact that Cruyff may have had on American soccer per se. So, as someone who uh, knows a great deal about the history of the NASL, uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the impact he he may have had here? Yeah, so I, I think Pele's signing was uh, incredibly important in, in terms of um, in, in terms of just well, obviously it was the most important signing ever by uh, a team in the United States. But it, it brought the mainstream media, it brought the mainstream sports other fan. than Steven Gerrard, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> brought the mainstream sports fan. Uh, poor Stevie G. I mean, we saw last week. Uh, just as an aside, who's who's did come into that uh, LA Galaxy team and uh, along with Nigel DeYoung, bossed the midfield with Gerrard out, and I wonder why he's even starting for that team, right. uh, honestly. But uh, back back to Cruyff. But Gerard, I hate to say this to Liverpool fans, he's not even good enough to start in Major League Soccer. So that's how far he's declined. Or maybe he was a, maybe this would have happened if he'd left your club at an earlier stage. Maybe it was a good thing he was a one-club player in Europe. Uh, but Cruyff came over here. He was already in his 30s. Uh, he had um, uh, wanted to join the Cosmos along with Beckenbauer and Canalia and uh, Pele. And by that time, Denny Tourt was with the Cosmos. And uh, they, had, they had a couple of other, uh, Denny Tourt, who scored the famous overhead uh, winning goal in the League Cup for Manchester City against Newcastle at Wembley in 1976. He had another final Newcastle loss. Newcastle hasn't won a trophy, as we know, a domestic trophy in over 60 years, but uh, that was one of the many finals Newcastle's been to in those in that 60-year period, and Tuart uh, scores that overhead kick and promptly signs uh, in NASL after. So they were collecting all the stars, uh, and Cruyff was going to sign there, but ended up signing instead with uh, uh, with the Dips, although actually I think he went to L.A. first, uh, and then went to Washington. But Cruyff signing was different than the others in that there were there was an underground of Europeans and Latin Americans who followed football, who really um, you know kept up with their domestic league somehow through the papers or through the phones. It was very different then. You didn't have the internet, you didn't have all these cable channels, you didn't have Fubo TV where you can download the app and get all these uh, channels if you're if you're a cord cutter. You didn't have things like that. So. It was difficult to keep up, but Johan Cruyff was seen as this incredibly stylish player, as opposed to the other guys who were coming over for uh, uh, either marketing purposes or because they had uh, larger-than-life personalities, like uh, like like uh, Rodney Marsh, a uh, former QPR and Manchester City player who came over to Tampa Bay and was, uh, you know, they, they dubbed him the White Pele, and he still got a larger-than-life persona, and when, was on Sky Sports for years, and now it's back here in the uh, United States, back now here living in Tampa. Uh, George Georgie Best, one of the greatest players we've ever seen, but uh, by that time, it was more about Georgie Best's personality and, and the fast cars and, and the parties and, and such than, than anything else. Cruyff's signing was seen as a football signing. Here's a guy who can help transform the way we're playing football in the United States, and maybe this will impact our young American players because we were getting the first set of American players of any kind of quality, really, uh, at that point. Ricky Davis, Perry Vanderbeck, Arnie Mauser, some others. 
maybe he's going to rub off on them. Uh, unfortunately, Cruyff was was here at the end of his career and was only here for a few few years before going back to Ajax. Um, and then I believe he finished his career with Feyenoord. But yeah, he, um, he retired briefly and then played for Ajax and then Feyenoord. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and and he, but he he did make an impact on people realizing that there was serious football going on here. And um, he played quite well, actually, for for both the Aztecs and the Dips. And um, one of the things Cruyff has always talked about since he was here was how much he enjoyed uh, some of the peculiarities of North American soccer. Um, he liked the NESL shootout. He he he, he uh, felt. Uh, I saw an interview with him in the, in um, the two thousands where he basically said. I think this is the way they should do it in Europe at the end of these Champions League games. Instead of the, the crap shoot of a penalty shootout, there's some skill involved in the NASL shootout. Now, of course, there were also a lot of injuries because he had five seconds and the keeper could come off the line and essentially take out um, the attacking player before he got shot off. But uh, there was more skill involved in it. So he, he actually embraced some of the peculiar peculiarities of... Uh, of the um, game in, in this country, and also um, spoke very highly uh, of the game in this country and was, was pleased that the United States won the World Cup in 1994, won the rights to host the World Cup, had uh, had been fairly favorable towards the United States trying to host in 1986, uh, and of course that fell through, and, and that had a, a horrible ripple effect on the professional game in this country, uh, sent us into a dark age and, and that we only came out of after that 94 World Cup, after hosting that World Cup, but um, he had a big impact here as well. Yeah, some of the things that he mentioned in in a documentary, few many documentaries about him is how he enjoyed the uh, learning about the about American culture, about how he had a, some degree of anonymity here, and but more importantly, he learned about coaching. He he felt he learned about coaching because at that time he was almost acting as a player coach uh, to a lot of those those players in his team. Um, so yeah, Joran Cruyff will be missed, but as we've mentioned. His legacy will continue, uh, not only in the, the fact that he's one of very few players that has a, an actual move named after him in the Cruyff turn, but also his tactical legacy and his playing legacy, as as both Richard and Karthik have elucidated. So this is uh, going to be it for Section 1. And before we get to Section 2, where we'll talk about the Champions League draw, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, SeatGeek. I'm a huge, huge Radiohead fan, and when I found out they were playing at Lollapalooza... I went to SeatGeek and found myself a day pass for the Friday uh, for the Friday show that was way cheaper than I thought possible. One of the reasons for that is the ability of the SeatGeek app to find the best price for sporting and concert tickets. Our listeners, you guys, that's you guys, I'm talking to you right now, get an exclusive $20 rebate off of your first SeatGeek app purchase. So you're sitting there right now, well, this sounds really good, Nipun. How do I do that? Guys, I'll tell you. Step one. Download the free SeatGeek app. Step two, go to settings and click add a promo code. Step three, enter promo code WSTPOD. And step four, once you buy your ticket, once you have your first purchase, SeatGeek will send you $20. So what are you waiting for? Download the SeatGeek app today. Welcome to section two of today's podcast. We're going to talk about the European draws. Uh, the games will be coming up in a few weeks, but we thought it's a good time to discuss uh, the, the matchups, given that it's International Week and, and we love Champions League and European uh, and uh, Europa League football. So the first thing I, I want to say is that with the teams left in the Champions League, both Karthik and Lawrence, uh, I find it interesting 
the that there's a huge difference and a huge uh, i guess d- diversion diversity in terms of the teams that are still in the in the matchup in terms of tactics uh, and their overall playing style you have barcelona and bayern who i, I consider to be complete teams in spite of bayern's uh, defensive lapses i think that has a lot to do with um, injuries rather than tactical issues you have real madrid and psg who i consider to be fairly tactically inept but they have incredible game changers incredible personnel that can because of those personnel, beat anyone on any day. Then you have City, who I consider to be fairly tactically strong, but psychologically weak in in the Champions League games. You have Atletico Madrid, defensively strong, psychologically strong, but lack game winners, except for maybe Griezmann. And then you have Benfica and Wolfsburg, who are the dark horses. So that's my overall theme of this, what we're going to talk about as we break down these uh, matchups. So the first one we'll talk about, Richard, is the Barcelona-Atletico-Madrid matchup. Your thoughts on that? I think it's a great matchup if uh, there are two games in league are any indication Atletico is going to need some luck to get by Barcelona. But at the same time, I don't think this is a challenge that Diego Simeone and his team would mind so much. I think we've heard a lot from experts like Sid Lowe who have described Atletico's attitude as being one focused on Champions League. Over the course of 38 games in Spain, maybe they don't feel like they have the horses to outgun Barcelona. But if they had to take them on over 180 minutes or in a final 90 minutes, they feel like maybe they could do something. That they can play any team tough enough. That they can draw the focus that they need over that period of time to maybe pull off an upset. I think this would be a pretty significant upset. You mentioned the virtues of Atletico Madrid. They have the best defense in the world. They have one of the best managers in the world as far as not only preparing his team defensively, but preparing their mindset. And they do have some players that can score occasional goals. So if they do get up 1-0 on anybody, they could probably hold that lead. I should say anybody except for Barcelona. I think Barcelona is proving that... Any kind of uh, balancing we want to do in talking about matchups, be it this one or any of the matchups they could have drawn, would it just be going out of our way to create the type of conversation that we're used to having? Barcelona is clearly the best team in the world. They're the favorite against any other team in the world. Any other team in the world has a chance, obviously some better chances than others, but for us to sit here and talk up the advantages that Atletico might have against Barcelona would be to completely overshadow the fact that Barcelona should win this one. The one thing I want to ask on top of uh, sticking with you, Richard, uh, for me, the only real issue with Barcelona, of course, is that they have Mascherano and, and um, they don't have a real solid defender playing alongside PK. And they also have some issues at fullback. So how can Atletico uh, tactically get to the heart of Barcelona, given that they will have almost no possession in this game? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. I think that is the natural question, but I also disagree with the premises. I think it's natural to look at Barcelona's defense and think it's a weakness because it doesn't have the same kind of superstars or the same level of superstars that they have in their front six. But Gerard Piquet is an elite central defender. A couple years ago when he was hampered by injury and we saw him take, being taken apart in Champions League, he, he was an elite defender at that time. This year he's been as good as any central defender in Spain, including the pair for Atletico Madrid. Maybe he's a little bit behind those uh, Jimenez and Godin, but he's right on that level. Javier Mascherano is a perfect complement for him. And because of Piquet's athleticism and his ability to cover ground, it allows Mascherano to jump into midfield and use some of his elite defensive midfield instincts that we saw with Liverpool. Their their fullbacks, of course, are widely criticized because 
Alba and Alves, people sometimes want better defensive capabilities from their fullbacks. Well, welcome to 2016. Fullbacks aren't those players anymore. And when you take when you take that 1996 attitude out of the picture and look at those fullbacks, that's an elite pair of fullbacks. Those are t- international quality players that start for top internationals. Danny Alves is as good a fullback as we've seen in our generation, and Jordi Alba can can do a nice, cheap imitation of him on the other side. So I don't look at their defense as a weakness. I look at the style that they used to play, uh, the same style that we see for Bayern Munich right now that gets exploited on the counterattack every once in a while as being the reason people think um, Barcelona is weak. Well, they don't play that style anymore. Barcelona can win a game with 60% possession. They can win a game with 46% possession, although they almost never have that, that, that little of the ball. They can play multiple ways. They have almost no weaknesses in their team. I, I'm just... I just can't say enough good things about this team. Yeah, it goes back to the complete team thing. So the other complete team that I mentioned, Karthik, is Bayern. And they've been drawn against Benfica. Uh, Talk to me about this game. As as I mentioned, Bayern's defensive problems are going away. They're getting the personnel back. Uh, And if that happens, there's very little chance, really, for Benfica in this matchup. Yeah, there's very little chance for Benfica in this matchup in general. They... uh... The draw was kind to Bayern. I mean, they struggled. They got the unkind draw, obviously, in the yeah, uh, round the of 16. Right, and no one wanted to draw Juve. None of the teams that had won their groups. Now, obviously, uh, we were in a situation where we saw Manchester City could avoid Juve because they uh, had been in the same group. But everybody else had that risk, and Bayern were the ones who ended up, uh, unfortunately, drawing them. And uh, they were able to uh, to pr- persevere through that. Their defensive problems have been apparent uh, in the Bundesliga at times, uh, which is part of the reason why ba- uh, Borussia Dortmund, who I think we're going to talk about a little later, yeah. uh, have stayed in touch with uh, with Bayern. But I think that they'll uh, they'll get past this, and uh, you know the, the development of Ki- uh, uh, Kimmich and. Some of the other players we've seen with Bayern this year have also thrown some monkey wrenches into uh, the German selection for uh, the uh, the summer Euros. So uh, it, there's going to be some interesting choices that uh, Jurgi Love has to make based on what he's seen uh, and, and what players have played well for both Bayern and Borussia Dortmund this season. Yeah, with, with Benfica, Karthik, I, I feel the issues will be that, uh, that one of their main strikers, Raul Jimenez, the Mexican striker, has really struggled for goals this season. Uh, I think they rely very heavily on Nicolas Gaetan and Renato Sanchez, who's a young 18-year-old Portuguese midfielder. So I, I cannot see them having enough of an impact and troubling that Bayern midfield. So I think we are in agreement that regardless of how this plays out, it'll be a very, very, very uphill task for Benfica. Uh, next matchup, Richard, Real Madrid versus Wolfsburg. Uh, right from the get-go, Real Mad- I think this is probably the most lopsided uh, matchup in some ways, in my opinion. I think Wolfsburg is the um, least talented of these these remaining eight teams. Um, even though we've seen some issues with uh, Real Madrid under Zinedine Zidane. Absolutely. I think that every... I don't want to say doomsday, but naysaying analysis that you hear about Real Madrid right now, it, I I agree with. I don't think they have been especially good under Zinedine Zidane. They certainly haven't played up to their talent level under Zinedine Zidane. And the fact that this first leg is going to be in Germany, I think 
opens a little bit of a window for a Wolfsburg team that does have some talent going forward that we saw what they're capable of last year when they put up that strong showing in Germany, even though they haven't played very well in the Bundesliga this year. Um, I think that we see that maybe there is a chance for some of these players that were overshadowed about by Kevin De Bruyne last year to step forward and, and spring an upset. Real Madrid's defense hasn't been good uh, ever since Sergio Ramos hurt his shoulder earlier this year. I think that could be a problem going on the road in the first leg. I think Zinedine Zidane's inexperience could be a problem. I think Real Madrid not really being pushed by many, very many teams or uh, not having very many teams that could threaten them during Zinedine Zidane's time in charge. I think that could really hurt them. I wouldn't be surprised if Wolfsburg pulled off a 2-1, to 3-2 to two victory in this first leg and then just got stormed at the Santiago Bernabeu. But because Real Madrid is playing so bad, because Zinedine Zidane is so inexperienced right now, I agree that they got extremely lucky with this draw. Yeah, with Wolfsburg, you have to wonder if the the, the likes of Draxler will be able to uh, earmark maybe Marcelo as an area to exploit. Because I think under Zidane, uh, this is the big difference I see between uh, under uh, with Real Madrid under Zidane and, and Benitez, is that you see uh, Marcelo bombing forward even more so. And I think it's a throwback to the time Zidane played with Roberto Carlos. He, he likes that overlapping left uh, defender, and Marcelo's probably the best left defender going forward in the world. So uh, I think that's an area that Wolfsburg would be looking to exploit. But overall, Zidane, uh, given the game changers with Isco and Bale and Cristiano, uh, Real Madrid farm favorites. So going from the most... Go ahead. Richard. No, I, I wanted I wanted to um, kind of amplify that because when you get that aggressive with your fullbacks, and I think I think in general Zidane is asking all of his players just to be themselves after what they were experiencing under Rafa Benitez. But when you do that, it really does stretch your midfield and the structure of your midfield to make up defensively and to help your center pair that sometimes gets a little bit isolated. And right now, I'm not really sure what Real Madrid's character is in midfield. Uh, I think that. Tony Kroos, we've talked about him on the show before. He ha- he had a decent performance against England this weekend, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is his last year at Real Madrid. He seems kind of out of place. We've got Casemiro at the base of midfield, Modric at the top of midfield. I, I It just doesn't seem to be working or doesn't have the structure that we've seen under Benitez and Ancelotti. So as these players are, are allowed to do more, allowed to express themselves, maybe they're ex- – uh, experiencing kind of a spiritual renaissance right now. I, I don't know the extent to which that's the case. But when you're going on the road, when you're going against a team that does have capable players like uh, Bastos and Max Crusa and Julian Draxler and somebody like Andre Schuller that can come off the bench for you, uh, you've got people that can hurt you if you don't have a good structure in place. And I think I think this is going to be a learning experience for Zidane. Yeah, well said. So going from the most, arguably the most lopsided of the matchups to what is probably the most even matchup of the quarterfinals, uh, PSG versus Karthik's beloved Manchester City. Uh, City have, uh, both of these teams have had some struggles in Champions League this year, but have uh, eked through each round and now come to this point where I think this will be a terrific matchup, both home and away for both teams. And um, for me, Karthik, the, the big issue again is in the center of the park. I think it's a good matchup for Fernando Fernandino and uh, Toure against Matuidi and Verratti, who some have been kind of on and off this season a little bit. So your thoughts on this matchup? Yeah, I think it's going to be very difficult for Manchester City, although we're already seeing PSG maybe lose some of their focus. Uh, they didn't play particularly well against Monaco right before the international break. Uh, they've run away with the French League. Uh, they've won the title, which... Um, 
it makes it difficult to keep your focus and just ratchet it back up for two games in Champions League. Uh, that having been said, Manchester City hasn't played well in Europe for five years. So uh, <laughs> there's just really no reason to believe Manchester City can even uh, uh, threaten in this in this tie. Uh, and uh, league form for Manchester City is, is uh, increasingly poor in the bottom half of, of the form table. And uh, losing a lot of matches at home. Uh, Manchester City has lost more matches at home this season in league play than in the previous five seasons combined. So... I, I, there's there's not much. I mean, there's I, I don't see a way Manchester City breaks through. Um, uh, PSG is sound defensively. Uh, they they get goals when they need the uh, need goals. Uh, even even if Ibra is off, I think uh, especially with the worn down nature of a lot of City's players, David Silva is not the same player he was even a year ago. Sergio Aguero is very inconsistent and is taking too many touches on the ball uh, time and again. Uh, we're seeing uh, some real problems in, in, in central midfield for Manchester City. Yaya Torre is not able to play every game. He's not able to play twice a week anymore. and uh, He's playing better uh, now that his games are being more managed, but the management of his games means that there's uh, some, some very uh, obvious holes. Raheem Sterling is probably out for the season now. So uh, a team that's looking uh, increasingly weak and uh, probably, uh, I, I think, unfortunately, uh, for, for the neutral, three of these four ties are pretty straightforward in the Champions League. And the one that's not that I'm saying is not straightforward is Atleti and Barca. And Barca are still overwhelming favorites. So um, I don't think the European Cup slash Champions League uh, is doing a lot of... Uh, uh, is doing a lot for neutrals. And this has been the case for several seasons now, where we've seen more interesting ties, even though there was less at stake in the Europa League. And mm-hmm. perhaps it's time for a format change. I, I think it really has to be discussed. Yeah, let me ask both of you guys this, because going into the round of 16, we have a type of de facto seeding in Champions League, where the group winners are separated from the second-place teams. Do we need to maintain some kind of de facto seeding going into the quarterfinals? Do we need to take the top four teams in terms of their coefficient or the best performances in champions league to that point, do we need to do something to create some kind of protected bracket so that we don't get these, uh, these battles of Titans so far, because every time you see a battle of a Titan in this round of the tournament, it means that there's a weaker draw somewhere else in the, in the matchups. Do we need to do something to change things up? I'm not sure, but I think it's an intriguing idea. I'd say it's difficult to do because, uh, you know, those matchups would probably be drawn at a point in the season where uh, where the teams might not be playing at the same level they'll be playing when the game's actually played. So it becomes difficult. And I think it's a good idea, maybe in premise, but in practice, I don't know how it would work. Karthik, you? Yeah, same. I'm not really sure how it plays out in practice. And I think... The predictability, though, of then who might be in the semifinals is another problem for the tournament. Mm. So, because the gap between the top four or five teams in Europe and the rest of uh, the clubs on the continent has been, it's just wider, getting wider and wider each season. Now, maybe some of that begins to correct itself as this uh, Premier League television money kicks in and the teams that qualify from England are, at least in theory, better. Uh, However, they may not be better because uh, I think what we're seeing is that the competition in the domestic league in England is forcing managers to make uh, uh, compromises when it comes to European football. It's it's no irony, small irony, that Manchester City is the one team alive from England in this round. 
in the Champions League because they're the only team in England that's not taking the domestic competition seriously, right? They've, they've been checked out of the Premier League for months. Um, so they're, they're, they're able to focus on Europe, but uh, Chelsea wasn't able to focus on Europe. They were fighting relegation at one point. Arsenal is trying to chase the title. They can't focus on Europe. Uh, Manchester United couldn't focus on Europe. Uh, Liverpool uh, maybe is the other one like Manchester City, and that's why they're still alive in Europa League. Spurs went ahead and threw the Europa League away. They're trying to win a title for the first time in over 50 years. Uh, the competitiveness of the English league due to TV money is making their, their clubs less uh, competitive uh, uh, in uh in Europe, so maybe that's another thing that needs to be solved. And I'm not saying I'm not making the case that some Premier League apologists make that oh the league is better top to bottom than uh, that uh, and is is actually a better league than uh, Spain or in Germany because it's not. Okay, it's th- it's the third best league in Europe at at best, maybe fourth or fifth. In all honesty, Leicester City's probably going to win the title, and that's still we love Leicester. We've talked them up, but that still says something. I don't know how many other uh, major leagues in Europe they would win, if any. But. Um, it's the, the fact that the teams are so closely bunched to get e- each one another in terms of spending power and quality of players that has forced uh, English clubs to make these concessions in, when it comes to continental competition. Richard? Now, guys, I, I, I will say that I kind of just threw out that hypothetical to set up a change that I really would like to see made because it is very difficult unless you want to inject the club coefficient here at this level to see a way to segregate the draw at this point. Now, one thing I would like to see change that would have affected both the draw in the Europa League, in the Champions League, as well as recent draws in this, both competitions is I would still like to see countries not be able to draw against each other at this level because now we see a Barcelona-Atletico-Madrid matchup for the second time in three years, I believe these teams have met at this level of the competition that's probably coming around one round too early and these are maybe the two best teams in this competition two of the best three i don't want to ignore Bayern munich so you can say that they're meeting uh, too soon too soon for the second time in three years if spanish teams couldn't get drawn against each other then they wouldn't be meeting until at least the semifinals that becomes a little bit problematic when you have more than four teams in the competition as spain did this year but it's a really unrealistic scenario for five spanish teams or five teams from any confederation to make it to the quarterfinals i also think it's a little bit unfair to spain because what we're seeing in the last couple of years even though spain doesn't need any help as far as the coefficient is concerned obviously is that the only teams that are beating spanish teams are spanish teams pretty much uh, and in both the champions league as well as in europa league where athletic bilbao has been drawn against sevilla spanish teams are going to have to take each other out before uh, they would necessarily need to under if this rule was in effect and other teams that are maybe less deserving are getting an easier pass into the next rounds so i wouldn't really shake up the competition i would just like to see the kind of federation independence extend until the semifinals of these competitions you're talking about the europa league uh the the matchups in the europa league being Villarreal versus sparta uh, braga versus shakhtar uh sevilla versus bilbao which is going to be a terrific matchup i think um i'd like i'm excited to see kevin camaro play he actually reminds me a bit of Giuseppe rossi uh he's not the biggest of players but really really good movement um good finisher so i'm excited to watch sevilla play bilbao uh, but the one we're going to focus on, gentlemen, today is Dortmund versus Liverpool. Uh, of course, our Premier League bias and, of course, all of us, I think, love Dortmund one way or the other. So, Karthik, coming to you first. Excellent matchup, this this pick of the match matchups uh, in, in the quarterfinal of the Europa. Uh, Shinji back in England, Klopp back uh, to Dortmund, Sahin back, uh, LFC to go through. 
or Dortmund? No. Definitely Dortmund. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Dortmund's one of the best teams in Europe. I mean, I, I would put them in the top five. Uh, tough draw for Liverpool. I was kind of hoping Liverpool would win this competition, and somehow Dortmund would get knocked out before they met him. Um, but it's going to be a special night, European nights. Liverpool fans appreciate it at Anfield, and uh, it'll be great for Klopp to go back uh, uh, to Dortmund. And he's still beloved, not only in that city, but it, throughout uh, German, Germany, uh, Germany and German football, as I found when I traveled there a few months ago. So uh, it's going to be fun, and I think uh, we'll have a great atmosphere at Anfield, which is something that all football fans should look forward to. You know, uh, there's a lot of dismissiveness of English football and of England among uh, many on the continent and many neutrals here, even here in the United States who don't, who uh, uh, watch the uh, Spanish league or watch South American leagues. And, and they don't look at uh, English football, maybe the way some of us do, but there, one thing that is universal, I think even among those who are dismissive of English football is the magic that's created on European nights with big teams from the continent going into Anfield. So, uh, the Europa League is going to take center stage, at least for that leg in Liverpool, uh, because, as I said, the four Champions League ties aren't that intriguing other than Barca and Atleti. I think a lot of people are going to be focused on this. Richard? We saw Tottenham get crushed by Dortmund in the first leg in Germany, and the first leg here is going to be in Germany also. That's not to say that Dortmund will crush plus one Liverpool in this first leg on uh, April 7th, my screen tells me. But it is to say that Liverpool needs to be very cognizant of the fact that they are not only underdogs, but they're they're huge underdogs here. Uh, I think we're, what we'll see from Klopp is his team quickly fall back into that four four one one shape that we saw him use so effectively while he was at Dortmund, while he had Kagawa pulling the strings behind a lone striker sometimes. Uh, and I think that if they can preserve a one or two goal loss in Germany, then then maybe they can get back to Anfield a week later. Maybe they can rely on some of that magic that Kartik is talking about, or maybe they can just rely on good fortune. But they have to do better than Mauricio Pochettino's team did in the first leg, because by the time that match got back to England, it was over. So Liverpool needs to be in preservation mode over the first night. Just start Lucas in that first leg. I think Klopp will mm-hmm. uh, have him uh, uh, really kind of protect the back four, shield the back four, and uh, and go from there. I, I think uh, you will see Lucas in this team in Germany. You'll probably see a, a, a good center back pairing. Maybe maybe it's Sacco and Torre. Maybe it's not Sacco and uh, um, Lovren or, or uh, a Skirtle. Or Skirtle hurt now? Uh, if uh, Well, Skirtle. He's fit. Yeah, he's fit, but he's he's not playing like he's fit. So uh, I I think you're going to see Lucas shield the back four and maybe uh, a lot of pressing up front. You'll go with a front line of Firmino, uh, Lalana, and uh, maybe Origi or maybe uh, Coutinho and do a lot of running and pressing and just trying to win the ball back and maybe get that away goal. I I don't think they're going to get smoked the way uh, Spurs did over the two legs. Again, Pochettino uh, was interested in the league. He he took a lot of heat because they were playing Aston Villa, but look, Spurs haven't won the league since 1961. They haven't won a cup since 2008. Uh, They haven't been this good since the uh, since the 1970s, quite frankly. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, Pochettino um, wants to finish ahead of Arsenal. I mean, even if they don't win the league, uh, there is a... Uh the, the whole talk, and I, I don't know that uh, uh, this is the right show to discuss it, but we are we do cover the Premier League. So uh, the whole idea of the, quote, noisy neighbors now has shifted from Manchester to North London. And Arsenal fans are complaining about Spurs fans. 
and and the field going around town. Uh, even if Spurs don't win the league, if they finish ahead of Arsenal, I think that's uh, was weighing on Pochettino. He wants to finish ahead of Arsenal, so um, he he sent out a B squad and and uh, paid for it. Uh, Liverpool will not do that. They won't get embarrassed the way Spurs did. I, I think yeah, I, talking about the, I think talking about the Spurs B squad is important because Spurs B squad is still a very good team. And so people who want to say, well, Tottenham rotated, so they didn't put their best team out there, and that's we should have expected that result. I agree with a couple of those premises, but Spurs have enough depth to where they should have been more competitive in that first leg. And I, I fully expect Mauricio Pochettino expected his team to be more competitive. As is, we talked about before, any experienced team overwhelmed by the circumstance against one of the top four or five best teams in Europe, not a totally inexplicable result. Right, right. Actually, Richard, I think you're right. I think Pochettino uh, was just trying to lose a like one nil, he thought he would lose one nil, and uh, get it back to White Hart Lane and go for it. Instead, uh, they were out of the tie, and uh, uh, therefore just focused on the league at that point. I, I think you're probably right about that. Now, I will say this about Liverpool center backs: I would actually start Skirtle and so- and Sacco. And I would play my fullbacks very deep and very narrow, just in case on a break, Obama Yang can try to outrun them. You could have Klein to pace it, try to track him down. I would play a very deep line, fall back quickly, and try to force Dortmund into crossing the ball to where Sacco and a Skirtle could have the advantage against Dortmund strikers. Eventually, maybe they bring on Ramos to try to help that, but basically try to get Dortmund out of their game. And then I would rely on Coutinho and Origi to try to create opportunities on the counter. Somebody like Origi to try to to bother the the Mats Hummels of the world, somebody that's a little bit error-prone, into making a mistake. And if that doesn't work and you get out of Germany with a 2-0 or maybe a 1-0 because you your center backs are just clearing everything all day against a team that isn't very good in the air, that's great. But I would actually start Martin Skirtle and just give him a lot of protection because if you can play narrow and force him into crossing the ball a lot, then you're getting Dortmund to play your game instead of theirs. Yeah, I actually agree with that. I think uh, Aubameyang, the issue with him, uh, the the big risk with him against uh, that Liverpool defense is that he's going to get on the other side of them really quickly. So if you can narrow the game down and make them resort to crossing, it will force them to play a different way. I agree with that. But we should also consider uh, Dortmund's defense. I'm not entirely convinced by the way Hummels and Subotic and Papastopoulos have played in some games this 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 year. So, uh, and all of them have been injury prone one way, one way or the other. So we don't even know if all three will be available for uh, the game against Liverpool. So talk to me about the fact that Firmino, Coutinho, uh, not Benteke, <laughs> uh, but some of those players, Lalana, etc., would be able to really have the beating of what I consider to be a shaky Dortmund defense. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think the myth of Matt Holmes is starting to be talked down. I think over the last five or six years, he's been a vastly overrated defender because, I, quite frankly, I think people that don't watch him a lot see the skill set that he has, and it's a very good skill set, and see some of the passes he tries and become enamored with him. But he is very mistakes-prone, even by uh, central defense standards. He sometimes plays passes that he shouldn't, sometimes keeps the ball or plays the uh, makes a more dangerous play when he needs to make a safe one. And over the last couple months in Germany, I think they've been talking about this more. That being said, in order to truly exploit him and Socrates to the level that maybe they could be exploited, Liverpool would have to play a possession game that I don't think suits them. I think that would just lead mm-hmm. to a lead to a shootout that they can't win. I think um, a better way to go about that would be to, uh, like I said before, rely on Origi's uh, 
speed and athleticism, play play long balls over the defense, rely on his ability to hold up the ball and maybe find a trailer, whether it be Coutinho or Firmino or both, or maybe Lalana coming in from the wing and hope for some isolated chances on cutbacks. But uh, as far as exploiting Hummels and Socrates, I think... I think you just kind of hope that they give you their opportunities because I don't think you can design your game plan around that. So, gentlemen, we'll wrap up section two here. In the final section, we will talk about the U.S. men's national team uh, and wrap up the podcasts. In the final section of tonight's podcast, we'll talk about the reason soccer Twitter exploded on Friday night. Ugh. There was a little game between <laughs> the US men's national team and I Guatemala. I'm ruining this. Oh <laughs> Luckily for your host, Nipun Richard and I have a bit of history with these games and analyzing after. So we're going to be good boys and girls. Okay, good. So luckily for me, I'm not as depressed because as Karthik knows, I decided to go rock climbing on Friday night and entirely missed this game. I did watch the highlights. And what I noticed, gentlemen, was that it looked like the U.S. men's national team created quite a few chances. So tell me, what was the real story? Why has everyone gone absolutely bonkers in, uh, on soccer Twitter? I think it's a couple of things. It's one, uh, the squad selection. Now, that was largely dictated by injuries, but still, Klinsman setting up the team in a diamond, having mixed Discarud, who... Uh, was rated this week by his peers in MLS, the most overrated player in the league, in a uh, (laughs) player survey that ESPN FC did, uh, ahead of the likes of Pirlo and Lampard and Gerrard and the guys we've said that haven't really performed. That's got to hurt. Yes, because I was expecting Gerrard or Lampard to be at the top of that list, right, given uh, their lack of impact in the league. Uh, So he was number one. He's a U.S. men's national team player who's uh, got great technical skill and no soccer IQ whatsoever, no brains. Uh, one of the one of the dumbest players that I've seen come to the U.S. <laughs> national team player pool. No, honestly, and I made this I made this comment in press boxes when I've seen him play in person. So my views on him are very established. Yet Jurgen Klinsmann continues to select him, uh, and uh, Josie Altador is not really fit. He isn't playing well. So Clint Dempsey was started up front with Bobby Wood, who was playing in the in the second division of the Bundesliga. Uh, most significantly, Fabian Johnson, the uh, best United States player, uh, he was injured. Uh, John Brooks, who was having a great season at Hertha Berlin, he was injured. And Christian Pulisic, who has been a, uh, uh, who's worked his way into the Borussia Dortmund team, who we talked about in the last segment, one of the best teams in Europe. He's only 17, but he, he's the best young American player we've had in a while. He caught a cold and couldn't make the game. He, ha- he will play, apparently, on a, uh, or at least be available to play on Tuesday night. But Pulisic was unavailable, was still in Germany, actually, uh, on Friday when um, this game took place. So down Burks, down Pulisic, down um, Johnson, and down a couple of other guys. Matt Beasler's another guy that could have helped in this game. Uh, Perry Kitchen, a player that might have been able to help, is at uh, uh, Hearts now in the Scottish Premier League, but he hadn't played football until he signed with Hearts a couple of weeks ago outside of the transfer window, so he wasn't called in. That left the United States without a holding midfielder because Danny Williams from Reading, who's having a very good season in the championship, is also injured. So injuries kind of forced Klinsman's hand, but the um, hand he was dealt, he did very poorly with. Six guys playing out of position. Tim Howard, recalled to the national team, starts ahead of Brad Guzan. Uh, doesn't look very good. Doesn't look very comfortable. Uh 
uh, Edgar Castillo, we're called to the national team, playing left back. Doesn't look comfortable at all. Uh, Jeff Cameron forced to play right back. We know he hasn't been playing there for Stoke at all this season. He either plays center back or holding midfield. Uh, he wasn't comfortable at the right back position. He played better once some substitutions were made and he was moved inside. Uh, the one standout player for the United States, I would say, was uh, Darlington Nagby, who came on at halftime for mixed discord, the player I mentioned earlier with the low soccer IQ. Uh, Nagby should have started. That, that might have uh, solved some of these problems. But uh, really poor performance. Uh, yes, it was a bad hand dealt to Klinsman, but he made it worse playing in a 4-4-2, uh, a diamond with the wrong players, having DeAndre Yedlin of Sunderland in that midfield. We know uh, he's a, he should have been playing right back. Cameron should have been playing center back. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just there's nothing else to say other than a bad hand dealt and then uh, play that hand badly. Richard, uh, sounds like Karthik's being a little discarude, get it, um, about the Premier about this U.S. men's national team. Let me ask you this. So one of the big things I kept reading about was that, uh, I guess, inexplicable, maybe, decision to play Cameron and Orozco out of position. So how Karthik thinks uh, it's a mixture of chance events, injuries and illnesses and stuff like that. At the end of the day, it's going to come down to that, uh, to how much do we blame Klinsman at this point, right? So talk to me about Klinsman in this situation. I can't protect Klinsman anymore. Um, for most of his tenure, I defended Klinsman, or at least I defended uh, the right to judge him under fairer circumstances because through a lot of his time with the U.S., Klinsman has always gotten a pretty bad rap. I think the bi- biggest example of this was coming out of the 2014 World Cup where a lot of people who for a long time have said, well, Klinsman actually hasn't changed the style. He hasn't actually expanded the player pool. He hasn't actually delivered on the number of promises that he made when coming to the job. They would unfairly compare his accomplishments at the 2014 World Cup to Bob Bradley's at the 2010 World Cup and say, well, the U.S. didn't actually do any better. Well, in 2014, the U.S. had the most difficult group in the tournament and then had had to play one of the most talented teams in the tournament in the round of 16. In 2010, they had the easiest team in the tournament and then had to play a very beatable foe in the round of 16. Uh, We don't need to go over that again, but that is just the biggest example of where people were bending over backwards to think the worst of Klinsman. Even coming out of last year's Gold Club, I defended Klinsman as saying this was a roster that he wanted to experiment with in a big tournament. That's why we saw players like Ventura Alvarado get so much time. Alvarado, a player, even with the injury concerns that Kartik cited, didn't get any playing time against Guatemala because he has been shown to be not up to the standard that Klinsman wants. Uh, Even after the Gold Cup last summer where the U.S. just bombed out, uh, it's a terrible finish, I defended his handling of that tournament. But since then, there have been a number of implicit tests where he has had to show that the program is on the right track. The playoff against Mexico, the the CONCACAF playoff against Mexico this Friday, and the team has just been found lacking each time. And we're now going from a situation where we're no longer asking how fair are the evaluations of Klinsman to how much rope does Klinsman get before somebody pulls on it. But I will say, I want to repeat something that I said on Twitter to Charles Bohm, somebody who covers the U.S. national team for a number of places, somebody that I consider a friend in the industry. It takes a historic confluence of factors for this to happen, not just a historically unpopular coach. 
Klinsman is somebody that I can no longer defend, but the player pool is something that I can't defend. If you go through the rosters of major tournaments going all the way back to 1994, you can argue that the player pool is as weak as it's ever been. And then the Federation itself has not created the urgency with both the players and the coach to transcend that talent deficit. And I think more than anything, the most discouraging thing is that I don't feel the players and Klinsman have been on the same page for a long time. And whereas over the last couple of years, I thought I had the attitude that it was incumbent on the players to adjust to the atmosphere that their coach believes will lead to success. Now I question whether that atmosphere will lead to success, and therefore I question whether players are incumbent to buy into that. I think all of these things have to line up for a team to perform that bad against a team that they hadn't lost to in, what, 48 years, uh, a team that still has a significant talent deficit, and the game, even though there were a ton of chances in the second half, really wasn't that close at the end. I just think this is a perfect storm, and now, for me, the biggest question is, who is the right person to drive this ship out of that storm? Right, this, is, did, a, this is a team that uh, created nothing but half chances in the second half, so I think what you have to look for is a strong tactical manager who can get garner the respect of these players. I don't see that guy in the United States right now. Um, I think after 2018, you want an American to lead the program, but right now, you might, I mean, I, I, I don't... It's it's one of those things. I mean, maybe you you reach for a Capello or a, a Goose Heating after he's done a Chelsea in do, a couple do you wanna, weeks. Do we, do we want to talk about um, options for new coaches because yes, we still absolutely. have a, a coach in place? Because I kind of agree with Kartik, but I think we need to decide if you want to put in a a two year plan, a plan that gets you to the next World Cup, because I think that leads to a certain number of managers, and I think Kartik mentioned one. Or do you want somebody that you think is gonna you want to still have in place the day after the World Cup? Because then that leads to somebody that you is more of a program builder and not just a stabilizer. So I think if you want a stabilizer in place, I think somebody mm. like Dom Kinnear could work. I, I don't think anybody thinks Dom Kinnear is a flashy tactician, but he builds solid teams that enable their players to do what they do best, and he instills beliefs in his teams. His teams traditionally almost always transcend their talent level. It's With some of his championship teams, it's hard to say that because he got... the arguably the most talented teams in the league to the titles in MLS. But Dom Kinnear is a former U.S. international. He's a veteran coach. He's widely respected. And we're still early enough in the MLS season where I think he can justify leaving San Jose. And, now, and as I told someone yesterday at the Orlando-Wilmington uh, game, the USL game, Orlando B, of course, uh, he has Scottish blood. So he's got some of Busby. He's got some of Moyes. <laughs> nice. He's got some of uh, Fergie. Simon he's got Fergie. some of Shankly in him. Now, so uh, that Because we had the same conversation, and that was the name that – all parties could agree on, Richard, so it's funny you mention him. Now, if you were going to go for a six-year plan, somebody that you want to take the team into the next two World Cups, the two names that jump out to me are Jason Christ, who I don't really feel like talking a lot about because I think his time in New York skews the conversation in a way where we can't have a rational one right now. And the other person I would say is Oscar Pereja from Dallas. Uh, he's somebody that is tactically adept. That somebody that's very good with working with youth has shown that he is a very good judge of when to inject that youth into the senior team so that he can uh, he can further their experience without compromising the squad. Somebody that clearly has a vision. Uh, the questions with both those guys is that they haven't they don't they aren't experienced uh, as far as the depth of experience of Kinnear or somebody that has experience at international levels, and it's unclear how their approach would adjust to an environment where you're only meeting with the team seven or eight times a year. Kinnear's approach, I think, would adjust well. I'm not sure how Kreiss or Pereja's approach would adjust. So I think that's... No, the question about Pereja is, is it that he's better working with young players and melding them into a squad? And if that's the case, 
uh, is he better as a technical director or as the U-20 coach? Uh, he's not going to leave Dallas to be the U-20 coach. Uh, FC Dallas has got one of the model setups in, in Major League Soccer. But, I mean, Richard, what do you think? Do you think maybe he's better with young players than he is with uh, established ones? I think it's both. I think that you can look at some of the players that he has had there. Like um, He got a lot of mileage out of Blas Perez there. Uh, before Blas Perez moved on to Vancouver this offseason. I think that he's been in environments, though, that naturally skew themselves to looking at the younger talent. Colorado was a very... Uh, was very focused on building through their own system. Dallas, of course, is very focused in building through their system. I believe they have seven homegrown players now. I think it's a lingering question with Pereja that hasn't been answered because he hasn't been in a situation where he has had to integrate that talent. Now, um, Let uh, let me actually bring up another thought. A little bit off topic, but not completely, Richard. Uh, You mentioned those seven homegrown players. Kellen Acosta is a guy who is called into the U23 team because of this Olympic uh, playoff that the U.S. is in. I think he could have helped the U.S. on Friday. He could help the U.S. on Tuesday. At, at what point does the U.S. have to stop prioritizing qualifying for youth tournaments and just put some of these players on the senior squad? Because uh, Acosta's a guy, clearly, he played Friday in Colombia. He might have been better off being in Guatemala that day for, I think, uh, for the U.S. to sick. I think one of the bigger mistakes that Klinsman has made, and something that is significantly hurting his credibility, although indirectly, is prioritizing the Olympic tournament. He came in and said the Olympic tournament is something that we're going to prioritize because it is a unique opportunity for our young players to gain valuable experience. But if you look at teams that have won Olympic tournaments, or you look at players that have succeeded in Olympic tournaments, or if you just look at the U.S.'s history with Olympic tournaments, there's very little correlation between Olympic success on a player or team level and senior team success. And when you're talking about Olympic tournaments, it's such a small sample size of games so infrequently that to say that it's so important seems like seems like a distortion. Now, if you tell everybody it's important, then they're going to say it's they're they're going to believe it's important because you are setting a goal for your program. And when you don't make that goal, people are going to judge you on it. What you have done is just enables failure for something that doesn't matter. So I would like to see the U.S. look at the right. teams and, as and I have to say, opportunities. Once uh, we were defeated in that U23 tournament in October, and, and there was also some, I think, effect on the Mexico playoff, uh, the CONCACAF Cup uh, uh, knockout playoff that was the same day by having uh, so many guys who were prominent players like Matt Miazga, who's now been signed by Chelsea, for heaven's sakes, uh, on that youth team. Um, uh, I, I thought maybe we wouldn't make the mistake again. Well, the U.S. had a problem at center back on Friday night w- with these injuries, and uh, Orozco had to play center back, as, as Nupun mentioned. Lo and behold, Matt Miazga had just played a couple hours earlier in a good U.S. result in Colombia in this playoff, common ball, CONCACAF playoff for uh, that final Olympic spot. But uh, I think Miazga should have been playing in Guatemala. I think uh, Kellen Acosta should have been playing in Guatemala. Will Trapp should be in that team. I mean, I think Trapp might have been called in for the senior team this time and not the uh, youth team. But a lot of these guys should be in the youth, in the senior national team because we have such a deficit of talent. Uh, 10 years ago, it was different. The United States had a lot. The U.S. player pool was much deeper with talented players 10 years ago than it is now. Right now, the talent for the United States is either at the very uh, advanced age, the guys like uh, Dempsey, Michael Bradley, Kyle Beckerman, Jermaine Jones, uh, those sorts of players, or uh, very young, like the Pulisic's and the Miazga's uh, and the Acosta's and the players we were just talking about. The one exception being, uh, and John Brooks is very young also, the one exception being Fabian Johnson. So um, 
I think this would this would have been a cycle not to prioritize the youth tournaments and to work those guys right into the senior team. So, Karthik, let, let me ask you about this. So, after the last World Cup, I think a lot of people, myself included, thought that there was a good crop of players in that men's national team. We're not even talking about, at that time, the likes of Pulisic and Miaska who hadn't really appeared onto the scene. So we were talking about the likes of Zussi and uh, and uh, Yedlin and uh, Beisler and etc. And we, we felt there was some decent talent there that would take the team forward. Arguably, and I guess I pose this to both of you, but start with you, Karthik. Arguably, most of those players that were thought of fairly highly at the end of the World Cup have taken steps backward. So why do you think that is? Uh, I think Yedlin has uh, struggled for playing time in England. He's playing now at Sunderland. I I don't think he's gotten any worse. Uh, In the case of Zussi, who also, by the way, I I now see has been called in as well. I I got a a note from Dortmund that Pulisic had been uh, released for national team duty, but it appears Zussi was also called in for the next qualifier on Tuesday. Uh, Zussi and Beisler, I think staying in MLS and being at a certain age hurt them to where their game stagnated and they didn't really kick on from where they were. I think Omar Gonzalez, who we saw have a horrific game on uh, Friday is another one of those players. He's now gone to Mexico, but he regressed in, in, in the year and a half after the world cup in major league soccer. Uh, I, I think also what we've seen is that the guys in the midfield, uh, it, like Discarude never really developed, and we've talked enough about him today. Aaron Johansson, who was a young striker we were real high on coming out of that World Cup, uh, he, he has gotten injured, and he really hasn't improved much. Uh, his move to Werder Bremen has been a disaster. So uh, it just it just hasn't happened. Uh, Timothy Chandler has regressed as a player. Uh, now at Eintracht Frankfurt, not playing. He's in a relegation fight. Uh, th- there's... Uh, there's just been uh, guys making the lo- wrong club choices and not emerging uh, quickly enough. Uh, that having been said, there's still enough talent in the pool to get into the hexagonal in CONCACAF and to finish third or fourth in CONCACAF. Uh, is the U.S. right now as good as Mexico or Costa Rica? No. Uh, is the United- Should the United States be better than Canada and Trinidad and Tobago and Jamaica and Panama? Uh, yes, uh, well, Panama, I think, is pretty close to the United States at this point. But those other countries I mentioned, and Guatemala, who they lost to, yes, they should be better than all these teams, even with these limitations, and they're not. Um, but there is an exciting uh, generation coming up, as you mentioned, Napoon. I mean, Miazga moving to Chelsea is a big move. He was, uh, to me, the best ball-playing center half in, uh, in, in MLS. Um, and, and I think he, he has a career in Europe, even if he's one of these guys Chelsea loans out a million times. Uh, he'll get games somewhere, and he will, he will kick on. Pulisic is a player we're very excited about and uh, has, has done very, very well already at Dortmund. Very impressive. Uh, Julian Green is another guy we forgot to mention. He was regressed. Uh, went on a season-long rolling to Hamburg last season and uh, didn't do well there. Uh, has played... Decently for Bayern for for the Bayern B team, uh, but got has not played for the A team at all, other than uh, in that final Champions League group game, which where they had already won the group. So uh, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of question marks, but there's still enough talent to where uh, mismanagement of the team and uh, I think a, a, a culture which doesn't uh, lend itself to accountability taking hold has uh, has run amok over all of this. I completely Richard. agree with Kartik there. 
there are so many opportunities over this period up until the hex and even in the hex against a couple of teams that would be in the hex during your home games to blend in some of the younger players and build for tomorrow uh you know against saint vincent's you could start some of these younger guys give them their first full world cup qualifying international experience and and he he did do that to a certain extent he cap tied a few players that could otherwise in unlikely scenarios go other ways uh, even against guatemala at this point if we would have lost on the road to guatemala and yedlin was starting at right back instead of midfield miazga was starting if uh bill hamid is obviously injured right now but if there was another goalkeeper that was in goal at this time even if it was will Yar- yarborough if some of these younger players were mixed in with some of the veterans and they lost two nothing then i think people would have been okay yeah. with it I, I should I should point out, uh, Richard, and continue in a minute, but the idea of bringing Tim Howard back, who has not been playing at Everton, and starting him in this qualifier, uh, it, it, I thought showed a certain degree of panic uh, on the U.S.'s part. I already indicated that there was some desperation going into this match. Well, to be fair, Guzan has not been playing very well recently either. Yeah, so I think at every well, level true. of the field, the U.S., the U.S. talent-wise is just nowhere close to where it was in the past. In goal right now, partly because of the age of Tim Howard, we have nobody that approaches the Friedel Heller, uh, Howard Keller level. In defense, there's nobody that is up there with Eddie Pope. Or I, I guess you can probably say Brooks is on the same level as like a cello or a lawless were. But we, we yeah, have no one close to Pope, though. Yeah, no in, one close. In midfield, when Bradley is 100%, he compares with Claudio Reyna. But he hasn't, been, he hasn't been the Bradley that we saw two years ago for a while now. And in attack, as Dempsey has aged, we have nobody that can compare with Landon or Dempsey in his prime or the uh, versatility Brian of Brian McBride. Wright or the versatility of Eric Winalda. We don't have anybody that's approaching those levels right now and again part of that is because of age Dempsey and Howard are at certain points in their career where they're not going to be able to compare to their former selves but if you were to take the players that we have right now and kind of rank them on a big scale that included the players of the last 20 years Klinsman's not really dealing with a very strong hand but that only furthers Kartik's point that DeAndre Yedlin should be starting at right back where he can grow Matt Miazga should be starting in central central defense and partnered with somebody that can bring the best out of him maybe somebody like emerson hinman needs to be mixed in here uh i guess i don't know for sure but i'm just not seeing any of these choices being made and that's what's a little bit disturbing today is worrisome and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow what is going to happen tuesday karthik we have to look ahead we obviously this was yeah, the first I, I think loss. the u.s will win i think the u.s will win but it'll be one of these gut-wrenching one nil wins or two one wins and the u.s will qualify uh, probably along with Trinidad and Tobago, although we'll have to see the, the second Trinidad-Guatemala game for the Hex. But none of these yeah. questions are being answered. And uh, quite frankly, you're going into a Hex where if you're still relying on Josie Altador and Clint Dempsey and Michael Bradley, you've got a real – and Tim Howard and Brad Guzan, you have a real problem. So yeah. we need to see Will Yarborough now. When Bill Hamid is back from injury, we need to see him. Maybe Louis Robles needs to get another look in the national team uh, because he's still young enough and, and, and playing, I think, at a, at a high enough level. Uh, and then Miazga, uh, forget the U23s for him. Uh, same thing with Pulisic. Pulisic has been calling to the senior national team now. But Miazga, forget the U23s for him. Will Trapp, forget the U23s for him. Play DeAndre Yedlin in position. Uh, and uh, let's let's really kind of bloodlet these youngsters because chances are you're going to finish third or fourth in the hex anyway, and either just scrape into the World Cup or go to a a playoff. Uh, I don't think the U.S. is strong enough at home anymore. We saw that in in the Gold Cup uh, to to count on beating Mexico this time. This will be probably the time the United States uh, 
plays Mexico and Columbus and doesn't win. The United States plays uh, Costa Rica in a in a home qualifier and doesn't win. So you have to be prepared for this. And so that's the question is then that we have to get back to, is it time for that fixer? Is it time for the Dom Kinnear? Or if you want to go abroad, you bring in Fabio Capello or Goose Heating, <laughs> someone like that. Um, or is it, uh, do you like Klinsman ride it out? Yeah. I, I think the U.S. is strong enough to win easily on Tuesday. It might be the kind of one nothing victory where the U.S. should have put away more chances, and if Carlos Ruiz was there, right. it would be such a different story, but the U.S. controls the game, that type of game. If the U.S. doesn't win on Tuesday, I feel fairly certain that we're going to see a coaching change at that point. Um, if, if the coaching change doesn't happen already. I, I know a lot of people aren't saying anything for sure. We don't see a lot of rumors out there, but I think Sunil Gulati has been slowly laying the ground as far as ramping up expectations, and if the U.S. doesn't look good in this in this return league against Guatemala, there are going to be serious questions, and we're starting to see a, kind of a fan revolt. I will say also that um, as far as the Hex is concerned, I do think the U.S. can still finish second. I still think they have uh, the pedigree and the talent to do so, uh, even though Costa Rica looks like they're increasingly strong. I still think that the U.S. can be the second-best team in this region behind Mexico. Unfortunately... As much as second place is in play in my mind, so is fifth place, the way that the U.S. is trending. And that's the scary part. Right. And, I mean, this is where strategically for the U.S., it might be better to actually have Guatemala come out of this group with them than Trinidad and Tobago. Because Trinidad and Tobago can beat the United States on their day. Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, Guatemala did beat them, right? But I I don't think we're going to see Guatemala beat the United States again for another 20 years, honestly. So um, that's that's, that's something to think about. But let's, you know, if you play it out and you say Trinidad goes and then you've got Honduras and Mexico, Costa Rica and Panama, it becomes very difficult for the United States. Uh, fifth, uh, sixth is possible, unlikely. Second is possible, but uh, they're probably going to finish somewhere in the middle there, which is third or fourth, and uh, they're going to scrape into the World Cup or have to go to a playoff. I believe this time it is with an Asian country, correct? Yeah, I, be- uh, I believe that's the case, yeah. Right, which could be... Uh, Anybody, Uzbekistan or, or Jordan. Jordan was right. in the playoff last time. Harry Redknapp is managing him now temporarily, by the right. way. Um, it, uh, it could be with anyone, but the U.S. Uh, has some work to do, no, no doubt. Well, when we come back on Wednesday for the midweek pod, we will discuss Tuesday's game and look ahead to the weekend's games uh, coming up now that the international week is over. Uh, until then, this is me, Nipun Chopra, from Karthik Krishnar. Richard? Uh, enjoy Kartik's football. <laughs> The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and AudioBoom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, LawsCast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.